Buddhism. Seems to be a mystery surrounding Buddhism. I mean, do Buddhists worship Buddha? What do they believe? Why do so many celebrities embrace Buddhism? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucherin. We're going to examine that today with an expert in this area. That's what the show is all about. We examine cultural and spiritual topics, try to undergird what we do with good reason and evidence for why we believe what we believe. And you can check some of our resources out, by the way, at evidenceandanswers.org. There we have resources from atheism to Zen Buddhism and many other things, including Pat's articles. You can download past shows, Pat's interviews with experts, and and many other things when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. So check that out today. Pat, another good guest today. We're holding his book right in our hands, and we're going to talk about Buddhism. Yes, Kevin. You know, there are approximately 300 million Buddhists in the world today. And believe it or not, it is the third most practiced religion in America. And there are about 2 million Buddhists here in the United States. And, you know, one thing surprising, Kevin, demographically, the majority are Gen Xers between the age of 30 and 49. And some of the greatest growth we see is not from Asians immigrating to America. It's native-born Americans. Wow. Yeah, Asians numbered only about 30% uh, in this population. And I remember a very interesting scenario. I was doing research for my doctoral program, and one of the Buddhist sects I chose was Soka Gakkai, a Buddhist sect from Japan. And I remember going there, and uh, everyone there knew that a Christian was coming to do research on Soka Gakkai. And so here I was, I'm Japanese-American, I walk into Soko Gakkai, and everyone there is Caucasian, they're American. And so we were sitting around the table, and everyone thought I was the Buddhist, and these were the Christians, <laughs> but it was actually the other way around. Yeah. So a very attractive religion growing here very quickly in the West. And to help us understand this religion is Dr. Harold Netlin. He's the Associate Professor of Philosophy of Religion and Intercultural Studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And he spent much of his professional life in Japan, a country we know that has a strong Shinto and Buddhist background. And so we're talking to a professor not only who has studied it, but has lived in that culture. So Dr. Netland, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Tell us briefly from the things that you've studied, what is the impact that Buddhism has had in America and the West? Well, the history goes back to the 19th century, but it's really after about 1960 that uh, you find uh, Buddhism much more prominent in the West. Uh, That coincides with the uh, cultural um, changes that were taking place. There were also immigration changes, so you had larger numbers of uh, Asian immigrants uh, coming at that time. Culturally, it has had a significant impact. It's been uh, attractive to uh, people in the media, in the academy, in the entertainment industries. So even though the numbers of actual Buddhists are relatively modest, somewhere between one to four million, I think you gave the number two million, that's a good safe number. Uh, even though the numbers are fairly modest, if you go into the academic world, the university world, or Hollywood, the entertainment industries, film and music, Uh, you can see the influence of Buddhism because many people in these uh, domains uh, are either practicing Buddhists themselves or are very sympathetic to Buddhism. Yes, you know, some of the famous people who have embraced Buddhism is Phil Jackson, the coach of the Lakers, 
uh, Richard Gere, the movie star, Steven Seagal, Tina Turner, and others. You know, what is the attraction to Buddhism for people in the West? Well, let me start by saying Buddhism in the West is, I think, something really quite different from what you find in uh, classical Buddhism as it began in India, then spread throughout uh, South Central and then into East Asia, up until uh, really into the 20th century, uh, there's been a fairly identifiable center or uh, set of core practices and beliefs running across the different Buddhist uh, schools and traditions. Buddhism in the West, I think, is really something quite different, and especially for the non-immigrant communities, those who convert to Buddhism over here, it often is a kind of uh, spirituality rooted in meditation that does not believe in God and uh, is, is seen as a real alternative to uh, Christian theism. So for many people, I think it's, uh, we, we tried Christianity, that didn't work, it's produced some of our problems in the West, we need to look elsewhere for our spiritual answers. And uh, the kind of Buddhism that is attractive in the West is set up as a uh, direct uh, counterpoint uh, to Christian theism in many ways. You know, Dr. Netlin, I hear that a lot, this appeal about Buddhism. I hear people say, you know, if I weren't a Christian, I would be a Buddhist. Or if, if I didn't believe in God, I would embrace some form of Buddhism. So there really does seem to be some kind of an, an appeal there. Oh, there clearly is. I've lived much of my life in Asia. Japan is heavily Buddhist. It's, it's a very attractive religion in many ways. The Buddhists tend to be morally uh, a very high character. The early teachings of the Buddha were very strong on uh, ethical moral injunctions. And uh, by and large, when compared with other religions, th there are exceptions. And uh, certainly if you're familiar with the recent history in Sri Lanka, I mean, this would be a counterexample. But by and large, Buddhism throughout history has been a uh, peaceful religion. And so... Uh, the images that are associated with Buddhism are images of uh, peace and tranquility, uh, quiet meditation, uh, high ethical moral standards, and, and this is attractive for many people, there is no God. It, it, strictly speaking, is an atheistic religion, and for many people that's a very attractive feature. Yeah, you know, speaking of images, you find those images in movies, in popular movies, that is, that boorish, ignorant Americans get enlightened by wise Asian who uh, who come to this uh, corrupt country and kind of show us the way. You, you you see that a lot. And we all like the movie, you know, Karate Kid and so on. But you do kind of get that there is no good Western wisdom. We're going to have to go east in order to get enlightenment and wisdom and gentleness and so on. You get that a lot in movies, don't you? Oh, it's not only in movies. I mean, Hollywood has picked up on it, but it was... There in popular culture and in the academy uh, before Hollywood got a hold of it. Part of that um, is based in reality. Uh, part of that is a construct in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, both Westerners and uh, Indian, Chinese, uh, Japanese, Koreans uh, have cultivated this image of the uh, esoteric East, the mysterious spiritual East, as an antidote to the crass materialistic West. Again, it's not it's not totally devoid of reality, but it is something of a a construct. 
if I could just give one example here, and I'm very mindful of uh, our problematic history in Christianity. There are many things that have happened under the name of Christianity that I'm not proud of, so I don't, I don't want to uh, point fingers at others without acknowledging our own faults. But I find it tremendously ironic. Perhaps the person who was more responsible for this image of the esoteric, mysterious East than anyone else was the Japanese Buddhist uh, D.T. Suzuki. And he spent um, many years here in the West and was a popularizer of Zen and uh, helped to shape the 20th century image of Buddhism and Zen in many ways. And one of the themes that he kept hitting over and over again was uh, Japanese spirituality, which is the same thing as the heart of Buddhist spirituality, is uh, peaceful and tranquil and uh, tolerant and uh, so on and contrasted that with the West that is aggressive and militaristic and uh, so on. The irony, of course, is he was writing all this during the 1930s when Japan was marching throughout China and Southeast Asia, uh, not exactly a paragon of peace. So again, my point is not to uh, point fingers at any particular group or anything, but simply to say sometimes the images that get uh, constructed and communicated uh, don't really fit the reality on the ground, and you need to be a little bit careful about swallowing uncritically the images that are out there. Well, you know, Dr. Netland, there are thousands of different kinds of Buddhist sects throughout the world, and I notice a big difference between the Buddhism of Southeast Asia and the Buddhism of Japan and China and Tibet. How do we come to understand Buddhism? Is there some basic teaching and a basic canon which all Buddhist schools follow, or are they just very diverse? They're very diverse, but there are certain things that uh, they all at least um, in principle acknowledge. All of the schools will go back, claim to go back to the teachings of Gautama, the Buddha. Uh, he was an actual historical figure. We're not sure exactly which century he lived in, but either in the 6th century or the 5th century B.C., and uh, Gautama is said to have had an enlightenment experience, which uh, revealed, uh, reveal is a wrong word here, uh, an enlightenment experience in which he understood the causes of suffering and how to overcome the causes of suffering. And uh, so all schools claim to go back to the original teachings of Gautama emanating from this enlightenment experience. The big division is between the Theravada, today would be found in Southeast Asia, Thailand, for example, and the Mahayana tradition, which would be found more in North and East Asia, and again, Japan would be an example here. Uh, the Theravada tradition accepts a much smaller canon of sacred texts, uh, the Pali canon, the language they were written in. The Mahayana also accept the Pali canon, but then they also accept many, many other texts that were written in Tibetan, Chinese, uh, Korean, Japanese, and so on. There are real differences. As, China, as Buddhism moved throughout Asia, it was uh, influenced by the local Chinese and Japanese uh, Tibetan traditions, and, and it did change in the process. There's actually a debate in Japan today by Japanese Buddhist scholars themselves where they discuss and debate the question, is Japanese Buddhism really even Buddhism? Or has it changed so much that it's really another religion? 
So it is a very diverse family of religious traditions. Well, explain to us some of the basic uh, beliefs of Buddhism that Buddha taught, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The heart really is in the Four Noble Truths, and uh, this is said to be what he um, was awakened to when he was enlightened. Um, He was bothered by suffering. All of life uh, is characterized by suffering. And uh, he was part of an Indian subculture that uh, believed in rebirth. We've had many, many, many previous births, lives. We will have uh, innumerable lives in the future. Contrary to the way that we in the West often think about rebirth today, this is not a positive thing. This is a terrible reality. Uh, Back then, you certainly did not want to be born into another life. So the Four Noble Truths simply teach, first off, all of existence is suffering. And suffering doesn't, uh, a better word than suffering would be uh, dissatisfaction. So even at the height of joy and pleasure, and the Buddha fully recognized that there are many pleasurable things in life, but even at the height of pleasure, there's this nagging dissatisfaction that the pleasure will not last and the next time you're going to need something greater to bring you pleasure. Uh, So all of existence is characterized by suffering. The second truth is simply the cause of this suffering or dissatisfaction is desire. And it's not desiring the wrong things, it's simply desire itself. Desire for life, desire for non-existence, desire itself is what drives suffering. The third noble truth says that when you eliminate desire, then suffering ceases as well. And the fourth noble truth says you do this by following the Noble Eightfold Path, and that has eight different steps that are divided between uh, wisdom or correct understanding, uh, moral discipline and cultivation, uh, so that you come to the point where you understand reality correctly And at that point, then, you're able to eliminate uh, desire, break the chain of causation, and what results then is nirvana. Yes, explain to us nirvana. Now, many people might think this is heaven or paradise, uh, like it's taught in the Bible or the Quran, but it's quite different, isn't it? Uh, Yes, you asked me to explain it to you. I wish I could. It is not heaven. I mean, the classical understanding of nirvana, it is not a place. Uh, There is nothing positive that we can say about it because uh, those of us who are not enlightened simply cannot conceive of what nirvana might be. So in the literature, it's it's typically described in negative terms. Uh, It is not this. It is not that. Uh, The teaching is even more paradoxical because right at the heart of Buddhist teaching is the idea of no self. And uh, this doesn't simply mean we need to become more humble and less egotistical and so on. Uh, The point at which Gautama really departed from the uh, Hindu Brahmanic uh, tradition within which he had been raised was he denied that there is any enduring, substantial, ontological reality, which we would call the soul or the self. That's an illusion. And that mistaken understanding 
is part of what drives desire and thus suffering. So strictly speaking, there's no person to enter nirvana. Uh, so it's a very counterintuitive and very paradoxical notion. Nirvana would be the state that uh, in, ensues or the state that obtains when the 12-fold chain of causation has been broken and rebirth ceases. Then you have nirvana. But it certainly, at least in the early teachings, was not a heaven or a paradise that a soul went to after death. Some of the later Mahayana traditions uh, did teach more of that kind of understanding, uh, but that was a much later development. Now, you talk about rebirth. That's different from the concept that we understand as reincarnation, isn't it? Um, the terms usually are distinguished. Reincarnation usually uh, applies to Hinduism, and then rebirth is uh, used with Buddhism. And the difference is simply with uh, Hindu teaching, uh, you have a soul, you have an Atman, uh, that part of you that survives the death of the physical body. And that soul passes on to another life. So both Buddhism and Hinduism uh, taught that um, there is rebirth or there are other lives, but they disagreed on what it is that passes from one life to another. And for the Hindus, it's the reincarnation of the soul. And uh, Buddhism said there is no soul to reincarnate. And so it speaks of rebirth without there being a soul to be reborn. So what is it that comes back in the next life? What's that? Well, what is it that comes back in the next life? Is it our, our, some sensations or emotions? Or what is it that comes back? How do we know we've been reborn? Right. Um... There are five different categories of uh, states of consciousness and uh, realization that are said to come together. And when they come together, uh, you have this sense, of, it's a mistaken sense, but it's a sense of uh, I'm an enduring person and I have a soul and I'm the same person substantially that I was back when I was only five years old and so on. Uh, when those five aggregates or those five conditions come together, then you have this. At death, they're dissolved. What passes on to the next life is the effects of karma, the effects of the actions of the five aggregates in this life. And so one way to think about it would be these five uh, conditions, five aggregates come together, and then I have this mistaken notion that I am an enduring soul, they dissolve, and then because of the karmic effects of the actions in this life, five conditions, five aggregates come together again in the next life. And again, there's this mistaken sense that I am an enduring person, and so on. Um, I think it's full of problems. Uh, we, we discuss some of them in the book. I, I don't think it makes sense. Uh, yeah, it doesn't sound very appealing. It doesn't sound very appealing either. Uh, you know, that to, to just completely do away with the self the, and have no self-reflection, you couldn't even reflect on the fact that you're not an enduring self, you know? There are real problems. And in fairness to the Buddhist tradition, I mean, the Hindu Brahmins would raise many of these questions and they would try to explain how uh, it can be. 
Um, so th- there are fairly sophisticated discussions there, but ultimately uh, I don't find them persuasive. And um, the middle two chapters of the book Buddhism look at some of these uh, problems pretty carefully. But you're right, if you really understand what classical Buddhism was teaching, um, it is very counterintuitive and also very disconcerting. There is no you, strictly speaking, and that simply doesn't fit most of our experiences. Dr. Harold Netlin, he's the Associate Professor of Philosophy of Religion and Intercultural Studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And you also mentioned in classical Buddhism does not believe in God. Uh, explain that to us. Buddhism uh, kind of came out of Hinduism, where there are many gods, but uh, you said Buddhism does not believe in God. Tell us about that. Yes, and again, I think this is a uh, misunderstanding many in the West have. Uh, you commonly hear in the West that um, Buddhism is agnostic. It doesn't teach there is a God. It doesn't deny that there is a God. It just doesn't uh, talk about it. Uh, that simply is false, at least classically. If you go back to Indian Buddhism and uh, see how the tradition developed, um, Buddhism emerged in an environment in which you had polytheistic Hinduism and you also had theistic Hinduism. So you had teachings about a creator uh, in some Hindu traditions. And uh, the early followers of Gautama uh, strongly criticize that teaching. Uh, and some of their arguments are the same kind of arguments you hear today uh, from people who claim there is no God. Uh, one of the major arguments being simply, if there is a creator, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? So I don't think there's any question that classically Buddhism has taught there is no creator. And uh, there are many scholars you can cite who will, who will reinforce that. In the 19th and 20th centuries, as Buddhism came to the West, uh, it became, uh, again, you have this constructed image of Buddhism and uh, the idea that it's really agnostic. And uh, it's not incompatible with theism, it's just different. This has become very popular. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that that's quite a departure from what the early Buddhists themselves have understood. And you don't have to look far to find uh, Chinese, Thai, Sri Lankan, uh, Japanese Buddhists who are quite emphatic. Uh, There is no eternal creator. I think that is a mistaken notion. Quite often we hear that uh, Buddhism is just agnostic, doesn't teach one way or the other. But uh, can you be a theist can you believe in God and also adhere to Buddhism? That, that's a very good question, and really a very important one in the West, because um, there are um, streams of Roman Catholicism, for example, uh, Roman Catholic practitioners, and uh, some of your theologically more liberal Protestants uh, who will practice Buddhist meditation. And in dialogue with Buddhists, they will say, You know, the Buddhists are simply coming at this from one side, and we're coming at it from another side, but ultimately I think we're we're really looking at and talking about the same thing. Um, My comment would be, uh, it depends upon what you mean by God, and it depends upon what you mean by Buddhism. And uh, 
religions change as they move from one context to another. And so it could be that Buddhism is changing in the West into something that it really hasn't been in Asia. And maybe it will be more of a theistic, uh, at least one stream of Buddhism in the West, more theistic. Uh, Time will tell. But I would say, if you understand by God what uh, classical theism has taught, Judaism and Christianity, an eternal creator God who created everything else that exists, And if you understand by Buddhism uh, what the Theravada and the Mahayana traditions have maintained up until the 20th century, I don't see how you can bring them together. And uh, my experience, uh, informed Buddhists from those traditions don't see how you can bring them together either, unless you really change what you mean by God into something else. Yes, this has been a fascinating interview on Buddhism with Dr. Harold Netlin, professor of philosophy at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And we're talking about his book, which he co-authored with Keith Yandel, Buddhism, A Christian Exploration and Appraisal, a great book in evaluating and understanding the religion of Buddhism. He gives a very thorough and fair treatment of Buddhism. It's a book you're going to want to get to understand uh, this religion. So... Dr. Netlin, thanks for being on the show with us. We look forward to uh, our interview with you next week. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being with us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zugarin. We hope you got some good information, and we have more at evidenceandanswers.org. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism is available free and for purchase. And by the way, when you purchase our resources at evidenceandanswers.org, you keep this show on this station and help us to expand. And you may also want to partner with us. Just click the Donate button on our front page. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerberg.